0: Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there's some on the table in the foyer uh, that you can have. Uh, feel free to grab one or two of those on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Tonight, we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark. It's a journey we started at the beginning of the year, and uh, we're still in chapter one. Don't worry, uh, the pace will pick up as we uh, move deeper into the book. Uh, Mark's gospel does move quickly. That's one of the ways in which he wrote this book. Was uh, He writes? He moves swiftly from one scene to the next. It's a very action-oriented book, and this would kind of set Mark apart from one of the other four Gospels, particularly Matthew and John, where you have long stretches of Jesus' teaching and you hear what Jesus is teaching, but Mark's Gospel is a little bit different. Instead of giving us those long discourses and stretches, he just points out the fact that Jesus is teaching because his Gospel is really focusing on Jesus in action. He's focusing on movement as Jesus journeys uh, throughout his life and ministry towards the cross and eventually his resurrection. And so uh, as we step into these scenes that Mark strings together throughout his book, they do move from one scene to the next, and you begin to get these glimpses of Jesus in action doing things. And what you discover is that the way you and I learn what it means for Jesus to be Savior And the way that we learn what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God and how we learn about what it means for Jesus to be uh, what Mark describes as the suffering servant, we discover more and more of who Jesus is through seeing the types of things that he does. And so, Mark just kind of platforms Jesus and says, Behold this guy, look at this guy, uh, watch him, observe him, see him in action. And this is very much what, what Mark intends to do, and it's what we are zeroing in on as we continue our journey through this book. We discover who Jesus is by seeing the kinds of things Jesus does. And we see him do some remarkable things in this. Passage tonight. We see him exercising an authority that leaves people in awe, an authority that everyone describes as being new and confusing. What kind of authority is it that this guy is exercising? And so we pick up in verse 21, we, we see this going down where it says there, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they, everyone in attendance, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one as the scribes. And so notice how the passage begins. It starts off with those two little words, and they went into Capernaum. And that word they there is a reference back to what we saw last week, when Jesus began to populate his kingdom by pursuing and summoning his disciples. And he called four guys in particular, Peter and Andrew, James and John, to follow him. He said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And so now Jesus has formed what we might describe as a missional community, and they are journeying through the region, advancing the kingdom of God, establishing the reality of God's redemptive reign in Jesus. And so the disciples are journeying with Jesus, they're walking with Jesus, and you're going to see later in this book how the disciples are called and commissioned to participate in the types of things Jesus is doing. So where you see Jesus discipling or teaching in this passage later in Mark chapter 6, the disciples will be sent out to teach. Where you see Jesus basically performing an exorcism of sorts in this passage, you will see the disciples doing very similar things later on in this book. And what that cues us in on, those, those little words, and they went into Capernaum, they together, Jesus and his disciples. That phrase reminds us of how disciple making is very much an experiential dynamic. What does it mean for you to grow as a disciple of Jesus? Well, it means for you to grow in relationship with Jesus and in communication in community with others on mission. Jesus is folding the disciples in on what he's doing they're cooperating with Jesus they're participating with Jesus they're watching Jesus and then eventually they're going to do the similar things that Jesus that they observe Jesus doing over the course of his life i love this aspect of disciple making reminding us that disciple making is it's an experiential education in other words you do not grow as a disciple of Jesus by reading books on discipleship You do not grow as a disciple of Jesus by getting into an ivory tower just alone with you and your Bible in isolation from others. You do not grow as a disciple that way. Discipleship, growing as a follower of Jesus, doesn't happen when you're static or when you're idle. It happens when you put feet to your faith and you walk through the world in communion with Jesus and in community with other disciples. This is how you grow. It's a dynamic, experiential thing. Lately, I've taken up cooking as a type of hobby. It's something I really enjoy. It's something I'm trying to learn how to do better. And usually when I take up a hobby and I want to learn something new, my first instinct is to go to the library and just get a how-to book, right? Go get a cookbook or how to cook or whatever the case may be. And I'll sit down and I'll read through these books. And I'll, and I'll capture the concepts mentally. I'll get the phrases. I'll get the vocabulary. I, I'll learn some things from the books that I'm reading. But the problem for me when I was first learning how to cook is that I would read these books and then step into the kitchen and try to execute what I had read. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, what does it really look like to cut butter into dough? What does it really look like to braise Beef, what, is it, what does it look like to do this or look like to do that? And so, my learning curve was far steeper when I was trying to do it by myself. And so, I backed up one day. I said, Well, I need to take a whole nother approach. And so, I moved from the books to the videos. I went on YouTube. I started watching people cook. I started watching cooking shows and just seeing people do the things I was trying to do. I just didn't know how to do them. And, and that helped, that improved my skills a little bit. I learned a little more that way. But then my education really took off when I decided, realized, hey, my mother-in-law's a phenomenal cook. Not only is she a phenomenal cook, she, she cooks Vietnamese food, and I love Vietnamese food. And so I started stepping into the kitchen with Bung That's what you, well, we call it. It means grandma in Vietnamese. I stepped into the kitchen with Bung wai, and I started cooperating with her. I started participating with her, watching her, observing her, and it enabled me to take up really kind of owned the things that had been reading and learning. Experiential education, this is what disciple-making is all about. So if you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus, you're not going to do so in isolation. You're not going to do so simply reading books. And I would say you're not going to do so simply by reading the Bible. Some of you think you can grow as a disciple just because you study the Bible. Do you realize that the purpose of studying the Bible or Bible study is never intended to be an end in and of itself? We do not study the Bible simply to grow in our understanding of the Bible. We study the Bible so that we may be swept up in the way of life Jesus has called us to. And so we study the scriptures not as an end in and of itself, but as a means. In other words, we study the scriptures so that we might learn simple obedience So that we might put our foot to pavement, so that we might live out the things that we're learning, live out the things that we're seeing, and all of a sudden we start experiencing Christ and He's doing things in our midst that are transforming our lives, not just fattening our brains. And so, if you want to grow as a disciple, it's imperative that you not just read the scriptures in isolation, it's imperative that you follow Jesus into community and you walk in community with other disciples. You talk about what you're learning in the scriptures and then you observe and watch one another trying to live out the scriptures in following Jesus. This is why our missional communities are set up the way that they are. Some of you have been involved with missional communities and you know that our MCs, what we call our small groups, they're a little bit different than maybe uh, some rhythms you, you might be used to if you've ever been experienced to church culture at, in various points. But our missional communities aren't simply Bible studies. Every week our missional communities do something a little different, and that's because we recognize that to grow as disciples, we don't just want to study the Bible, we want to share life with one another. We want to deepen our relationship with one another, establish community with each other. And then we know that we have an opportunity to be a blessing to our various neighborhoods and, and to make much of the kingdom of God in this city. So our missional communities then, they yes, they do study the scriptures. They give themselves as students reading the scriptures, talking about the scriptures, learning the scriptures. But they also give time to just simply sharing experiences with one another. Learning to love one another. And then they also give time to serving their neighborhoods and serving their neighbors in this city in various ways. Because ultimately we believe you grow as a disciple when you're growing in your love for God through the study of his word. When you grow in your love for one another, in community with other disciples. And when you grow in love for your neighbors as you're serving them and blessing them the way Jesus intends for you to. And so here, you get a little glimpse of that in verse 21. A little hint, and you'll see this fleshed out in a myriad of ways as we continue the walk through this book. But this is what's going down in verse 21. Jesus is going into Capernaum. He brings his disciples with him. When he gets to Capernaum, this lakeside city just north of the Sea of Galilee, this community of about 10,000 people that was quite eclectic, had a variety of, of people types living there, from fishermen to farmers, from artisans to merchants and public officials, just a, a, a vibrant little community. And within this community, there was at least one synagogue that Jesus was invited to teach in. And so on the Sabbath, he was invited to step into this space and to teach. And that's what he's doing there, isn't he? He walks into the synagogue and was teaching them. And in that moment, we we get a little glimpse of how significant teaching is and how essential teaching is to the advancement of God's kingdom. One of the primary ministries Jesus executed as he's establishing his kingdom in the world was to teach, was to communicate. Was to convey truths to people who were cut off from truth or who, were misunderstood, who had a misunderstanding of what is true and real and good and beautiful. Jesus stepped in and he begins to teach them. Teachings, an essential part to the advancement of God's kingdom, and that's still the case today. There's a reason why we do teach the scriptures every week, we step into this space. We believe teaching is fundamental and essential to the advancement of God's kingdom. There are things we all need to learn. So we come under the scriptures and we seek to learn. There are things we all need to grow in. So we want to study the scriptures in order to promote that type of growth. And so Jesus steps into the synagogue on Sabbath and he's teaching. But his teaching has an effect unlike anyone else's teaching prior to this moment. It says in verse 22 that the people in attendance were astonished at his teaching. They were blown away by the things he was saying. I love how one scholar translates that word astonished. He he puts it, they, they were thunderstruck by the teaching of Jesus. There was a resignation between what Jesus was saying and how their hearts were responding so that they were thunderstruck by the truth and the authenticity and the credibility within which Jesus taught them. And then we're told why in the very next sentence. He says, They were astonished at his teaching for he, Jesus, taught them as one who, and here's the key word, had authority. They were thunderstruck by his teaching because he taught them as one with authority. Now that word authority can literally be translated um, out of original stuff. He taught them as someone who possessed an originality to his authority that was contrasted with the other scribes and the other teachers who had passed through the synagogues each Sabbath day. And you'll notice, even in the English word, you'll notice how this word is related. There's a little word tucked into our English term authority, and it's that word author, right? It's the word author. And so you might say that part of the reason why Jesus astonished them with his teaching is because he came to them and he began to teach them about life, and he taught them about life not as uh, someone who was learning about life, but as someone who actually designed life. He's teaching them about life as the author of life. So his teaching then carried a weight to it. It carried an authenticity to it. It carried an authority to it because Jesus is, we might say, the original stuff. His authority was unlike that of the scribes and the other teachers who had come through the synagogues. You might contrast it this way. Jesus' teaching was original. It carried with it an original authority. The scribes' teaching carried with it what we might call a derived authority. You see, scribes had the tendency to teach where they would step into a synagogue and they would teach by quoting one another. And they would build their teaching upon the traditions of interpretation and the traditions of application that had been carried on for centuries. But when Jesus stepped in... Excuse me, when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he did not teach like the scribes. He did not teach like one who was learning about life. He did not teach as someone with a derived authority. He taught as someone who had original authority. He taught as someone who was, who was responsible for the very truths and the things that he was, he was teaching. So you might say it this way every authority on earth is similar to. The authority exercised by the scribes in the synagogues. In other words, every authority on earth is a derived authority. Every authority figure is either voted into their position, hired into their position, promoted into their position. Every authority source we have in this world, their authority is derived from one place or another. But there's no earthly authority whose authority is original, whose authority comes from the original stuff. So then the question comes for you and I, who's going to carry, whose weight will be heavier in our lives? Whose authority will we ultimately submit ourselves to? Are we going to submit ourselves to an earthly authority whose authority is derived Or are we going to submit ourselves to Jesus' authority, which is original? You see, every person in this room has questions about life. We all want to know how to live. We all want to know how life lives best. We, We want to know what it means to be fully human. Well, who are we listening to to tell us? Whose authority is carrying weight in our lives to help us see and to learn what it means to be a fully human being? Is it a derived authority, someone who's just learning from other people or experiences or the accumulated values of a tradition or a culture or a society, or are we giving ourselves to the original authority, the one named Jesus, who is present and teaching in this text? You see, some derived authorities that you and I tend to give a lot of weight to are celebrities, right? Our culture loves to catch celebrities' take on all kinds of issues issues related to life, issues related to the world. We want to hear what the celebrities have to say, as if because of their position and influence, it seems to carry a lot of weight with people. Some of us turn to talk show hosts. Others of us turn to health experts. Some of us go to scientists. Some of us go to psychologists and counselors. We look to artists and professors. We, we may look to the cumulative experiences of a, of a particular Culture to help us discern and decide, okay, what is life to be about? How does life work best? And what's tricky about that is sometimes those sources do stumble upon what's true. Occasionally, they will stumble upon something that is right and good and true. The problem is these derived authorities are inevitably incomplete. They are inevitably inadequate. They are inevitably insufficient. And so when we give ourselves to learning about life from these various places, and all of a sudden they start telling us something, and then we read something in the, in the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, and, and there's a conflict. You and I have to make a choice. Well, who has more authority? Are we going to listen to someone whose authority is derived? Or are we going to go to the original? Are we going to go to Jesus? See, ultimately, life can only be understood when you and I are living in submission to the original authority. This is precisely what Paul is trying to communicate in Colossians chapter 1, where he describes Jesus in a way that should blow our minds. Notice what he says about Jesus in Colossians 1 verse 15. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this is what's going down in the synagogue. Just imagine, Jesus stands up and he begins to teach. And he's teaching them about life. He's teaching them about God. He's teaching about what it means to be human. And he's teaching it as God in the flesh. So there's a sense in which Everyone in the synagogue is listening to Jesus teach, and they're learning about God from God. Who's a better source on God than God, right? So they're learning about God from God. That's that's one side of it. But then on the flip side of it, Jesus is fully human. He's fully man in that moment. So he's talking about life as a fully human being. You get the best of both worlds in Jesus' teaching. On one hand, he's showing them who God is and what God is like. But then on the other hand, he's showing the people what it means to be a fully human being, what it means to be a healthy human being, what it means to live life the way God had intended us to live. And so you get the best of both worlds in Jesus. This is why I think his teaching carried such authority to it. It carried such originality to it because he is the source of, of life. This would be like some of you wanting to become a computer programmer and you have the opportunity to learn computer programming from Bill Gates. You would take him up on that offer, wouldn't you? Who else would you want to learn computer programming from than Bill Gates? No, you want, the source matters. And so when it comes to who has authority in our lives, we need to make a clear distinction between whether or not the overriding authority in our lives is the original or if it's a deri- or, or derivative, is it original or is it a derived authority? And the way Jesus then exercises his, his teaching authority in our lives today is fundamentally, basically, practically through the scriptures, right? We learn, we come under the teaching of Jesus by giving ourselves to the teaching of scripture. And when you and I do that, if you get to the point in your discipleship where that's where you roll, The scriptures become the definitive authority to your life, you're gonna find something very interesting happen. Because at some point in time, you're gonna start reading the scriptures on life and about life and on God and about God, and suddenly you're gonna read something that rubs you the wrong way. You're gonna read something that goes against the grains of your instinct, or maybe it runs against the grain of your culture. And when that happens, how do you respond? Whose authority is going to carry the most weight? The scriptures suddenly contradict you. Are you then going to come under the scriptures? Or or are you going to appeal to a derived authority, whether it be culture, whether it be some other counselor, whether it be some other person in your life who says something otherwise? Well, the disciple is someone who's come under the teaching of Jesus, recognizes his unique authority, And says, I'm going to learn life from Jesus. That means if there's a part of me that is out of touch with what Jesus taught or what Jesus said or what Jesus lived. Well, I'm not going to change Jesus. I'm going to change myself. I'm not going to appeal to a derived authority, listen to some other outside source. I'm going to submit to what Jesus is teaching me through the scriptures. So eventually, that's going to happen. It happens to everyone. Eventually, the teachings of Jesus contradict people. Eventually, the teachings of Jesus contradict cultures. And at that point, we have to decide, well, who are we really submitting to? Who's the original? And will we follow him? And so this is going down here. This is why I think the people are responding the way that they did by being astonished, by being thunderstruck by his teaching. But you don't just see his authority in his teaching. You see his authority in the deliverance that goes down beginning in verse 23. You might say it this way. There's thunder in the teaching of Jesus, but then lightning strikes, strikes when Jesus is interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit. So he doesn't simply speak in this moment. He performs a a miracle. He performs a work of transformation in the life of one of the persons in attendance. This is what goes down, picking up in verse 23. It says, Then, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit is Mark's way of saying a demon. A fallen angel who's wreaking havoc in someone's life. This is a person present in the synagogue who's under the oppression of the enemy. He's being tyrannized by the enemy. And, and this unclean spirit, this man with an unclean spirit, then interrupted Jesus. Now, this isn't this, we've been interrupted in this space before, but I don't think it's happened as a result of something like this yet. And I don't quite know how I would handle something like this, but Jesus knows what he's doing, right? He's the original. He handles everything well. And so the guy interrupts Jesus, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So here Jesus is interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit. He's teaching. His teaching is stopped by a guy who's who's talking to Jesus, it seems, in this moment. And the first thing he says is, what have you to do with us? Why are you here? So there's a sense in which this unclean spirit feels threatened by the person of Jesus, saying, what have you to do with us? Why are you here? It's as though he's saying, this is our turf, this is our territory. We're here, I'm here, and Jesus, you don't belong here. Why are you here? What have you to do with us? And Jesus then looks at him and he rebukes them. They have a conversation, but all that to say is that that first question reminds us that Jesus, when he entered the world, when God took on flesh and he began to walk among us, In a sense, Jesus was invading enemy territory. He was going after things that the enemy was oppressing and tyrannizing. He was doing those types of things. And what's interesting in this moment is that this unclean spirit is present in the synagogue. It's not unlike what happened in the Garden of Eden, where you have God's presence there with his people living in paradise, but there was another person there, right? There was the serpent who later we discover is Satan and he's present in paradise just like this unclean spirit is present in the synagogue. All that to say is you and I should never be caught off guard. We should never be ignorant of the fact that one of the ways in which the enemy disguises himself and one of the ways in which the enemy goes to war against everything that God is seeking to do is by infiltrating communities of faith disguising himself and wreaking havoc from within. And so the moment Jesus shows up here, this unclean spirit comes forward. There's a sense in which maybe he would have wanted to stay hidden, just stay a part of this guy's life. But now that Jesus is there, he knows that he can't remain hidden. He can't hide from Jesus. And so he comes forward and he engages Jesus in a conversation. Then he asks a second question, have you come to destroy us? I love that question because we know the answer. Have you come to destroy us? And the answer to that question is a resounding, absolute yes. This is precisely what Jesus has come to do. He's come to destroy unclean spirits. He's come to destroy the works of the enemy. This is exactly what John would say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where we're told that the reason the Son of God appeared, why he came, was to destroy the works of the devil, This is precisely what Jesus has come to do. And he's echoing what went down or what was actually predicted of Jesus in the very beginning of the Bible. In the very beginning of the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's a moment where God is speaking to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, and he's divvying out consequences for their sin and disobedience. And then he makes a promise in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, and he tells them that there's coming a day when the seed of the woman. Is going to bruise the head of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Yeah, the serpent's going to bruise his heel. The serpent's going to inflict pain upon the seed of the woman. But ultimately, the seed of the woman is going to defeat the serpent. He's going to defeat Satan. This is the cosmic clash that Mark is cueing us into in this moment. This is something that should excite us and enthrall us of knowing that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. He's come to expose darkness and to roll it back. He's come to liberate those who are oppressed and tyrannized by, under the influence of the enemy. So it's a remarkable thing. Have you come to destroy us? The answer to that is yes. But then notice also that he asks this question in the plural. He says, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? This unclean spirit is speaking on behalf of the entire demonic order. And he's recognizing that, Their time is short, that their influence in the world will soon expire. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus has come, and he's going to roll all of that back. And so the enemy begins to speak to him in this moment, asking him these questions, but then he affirms Jesus' identity. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he confesses and bears witness to Jesus' identity. He knows who he is. And now some of the material I've been reading on this passage, they'll, they'll say, you know, that exorcisms and, and the casting out of demons, that was something talked about a lot in writings coming out of the first century. Many people talked about how it should be done and how it could be done. The problem is, in most of that literature, there are no stories about it actually happening. Everybody talks about it in theory, but nobody actually does it. There's no pictures of someone actually casting out demons and helping people come out from under the influence of unclean spirits. That is, until you step into the Gospels and you read the Gospel narratives and you see Jesus doing it over and over and over again, coming to roll back the darkness. And, but what's interesting is that a lot of, those, a lot of that literature would say that one of the techniques that people use is the employment of a name. So if in order to exercise a mastering effect over a spirit or a person, you, you speak their name. And so there's a sense in which when this unclean spirit says, you were, uh, calls him Jesus of Nazareth, and then he calls him the Holy One of God, that this was a futile attempt on his part to gain control and to gain power over Jesus. Of course, it's futile because he doesn't succeed, right? He says Jesus' name, but it gives him no control over Jesus. He can't tame Jesus. He can't beat Jesus in this moment. I'm convinced this is one of the reasons why moms and dads say their kids' full name when they're in trouble, right? Andrew, Glenn, Arthur, get over here. right? That's, you know, she, she, that's a power play. It's an authority thing. And this is what's, I think, a conflict of authority going on between Jesus and this unclean spirit. He says his name in order to take power in this moment. But he can't wrestle power. He can't wrestle authority away from Jesus. His attempts are futile. His attempts fall flat. And so Jesus then rebukes him. He rebukes him be silent and come out of him. And you'll notice that there's a convulsing effect. You'll notice that there's a reaction by this unclean spirit. He doesn't want to leave, but he has no choice. He doesn't want to, but he has no choice. Jesus commands this spirit to come out, and this evil spirit must obey him. This is an authority, the type of which should blow our minds. It's authoritative teaching. It's an authoritative deliverance. And then in verse 27, we find where it's all driving to, that this is what Mark wants us to consider. He says in verse 27, our response to this, should be theirs response. And they were all amazed. They were amazed that Jesus taught this way and that Jesus did this type of thing. So that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? And then get this, a new teaching with authority. A new teaching with authority. So then we step back for a moment and we ask, okay, what, is, what made Jesus' teaching new? What made Jesus' teaching with authority so unique in this passage? You see, the people that were present had never seen anyone leverage their authority for other people's good. They'd never seen people, someone leverage their power to set people free and to help people. They were used to a power structure. They were used to an authority culture where authority was wielded not in order to help people. Authority was wielded in order to promote the person in charge. This is exactly what Jesus addresses in Mark chapter 10. Let me show you. You flip over to Mark chapter 10, you're going to see this present in a conversation Jesus has with his disciples. And by looking at this passage, we're going to see what made Jesus' authority new, what made it unique. Because in Mark chapter 10, they're having a conversation about what makes a person great. And his disciples, James and John, are wondering who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus then addresses and redresses their conversation. And this is what he says. He says, beginning in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, authorities, lord it over them. They use their authority in order to lord it over people. Oppressive would be one of the ways to say that. And it says, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But notice the flip of the script that Jesus brings in. He says, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What makes Jesus' authority new and unique, not only in Mark 1 but all throughout the gospel, What makes it new and unique is how he wields it. It's how he uses it. Jesus wields his authority not in order to oppress people. He wields his authority in order to liberate them. And to liberate people from various forms of oppression, whether that oppression is demonic, whether that oppression comes from sin, whether that oppression comes from sickness and suffering, Jesus wields his authority for other people's good, not just his own. This is what makes Jesus' authority unique. It puts Jesus in a class all by himself so that he becomes the one authority we want to submit our lives to. Because no other person with power in the world will treat us the way Jesus will treat us. He's the king we want to gladly submit ourselves to because he wields his authority to liberate us from various forms of oppression. And you are not going to find another authority, another king, another master, another savior, another Lord in this world who will treat you the way Jesus intends to treat you. He entered the world not to be served, but to serve. That is unlike any other authority. Most people in authority, they will their power in order to be served and to be propped up. Jesus doesn't wield his authority that way. He wields his authority in order to serve and to prop other people up. Therefore, we want to gladly submit to the authority of Jesus. We want him to be the original authority in our lives. We want to bring everything into submission with Jesus because we know he wields his power, his authority, in order to liberate us from various forms of oppression. This is true even when you read something in Scripture that contradicts you. You read something in Scripture that goes against your instincts, goes against what's popular, goes against what's common. Even then, you can rest assured that whatever it is Jesus is teaching, whatever it is he's saying about life, You can submit to that because ultimately his teaching is for your good. It's for your liberty. It's for your growth. So here we have a new kind of authority in Jesus. One that we should gladly submit to. And when you and I find ourselves submitting to Jesus, stepping underneath his authority, that's when we're going to find freedom. That's when we're going to find life. That's when we're going to find liberty. It's not unlike what I do with my daughter. Every time I I like to play with Delaney, I have a little finger trap. And I've done it to her multiple times. She still hasn't figured it out yet. But I take her little fingers and I put them in a finger trap. It's a little paper trap. And I'll stick her fingers in both ends. and, And I'll say, okay, Delaney, now get free. Get yourself out. And instinctively, she just starts pulling as hard as she can in opposite directions. And the harder she pulls, the tighter the trap grips around her little fingers. And so I'll ask her the question, Delaney, how do you expect to get free if you're, just, if you're pulling against it? Maybe there's another way. And she'll say, well, well, how do I get free? I said, well, you get free not by resisting it, not by pulling back. You find freedom by pressing into it. And you cooperate with the design of the trap. And so she'll start pushing her fingers closer. And as she does, the the trap will loosen up and her hands will go free. And this is precisely how freedom comes to the followers of Jesus. We find ourselves free not by resisting the authority of Jesus. Not by pushing against the authority of Jesus. We find ourselves free when we press into it. And we submit ourselves to the original authority, the God man, Christ Jesus. So ask yourself, who is it that you're submitting to right now? Are you someone who's pressing in to Jesus, or are you still pulling back from Jesus? And let me encourage you to press into Jesus so that he will, and find that he'll wield his authority not for your oppression. But for your liberation. That's the beauty of discipleship. That's the glory of God's kingdom. So we step into it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I come before you right now and I just ask that you would give us grace to consider how we are relating to Jesus. I pray, Father, that if there are areas in our lives where we are resisting his authority or we are pushing back against the things that he's saying or the things that he's doing, I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to, to stop resisting and to press in. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would wield your authority for our liberation, that you would set us free from various forms of oppression, that you would give us grace to grow as your people, Help us to learn, help us to live, help us to love in the ways in which you have called and demonstrated us to. Father, I pray that you would do this and that you would do it all in the name of Jesus. This is his name that we pray. Amen.